You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Good morning, Faith Church. If you don't know me, my name is Brian Eide. I am discipleship coordinator here at Faith Church and also an elder. And so it's my joy to bring the word today. Dylan is away, and Dylan and Jamie and family uh, away for the weekend. Um, so what we're going to do today is something, uh, just a little pause from our series in Exodus. And um, we'll, we'll have a chance to, to take a look at uh, the book of Titus. Oh, not just today. I will be preaching over the course of a few weeks, but spread out. So this will be part one today. If you have a Bible and want to turn to the book of Titus, uh, you can do that. We'll read the word here together in a moment. If you don't have one, there are some at the back uh, of the room here on the tables, and it would be our gift to you uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible and you uh, would like one. Uh, please pick one up either now or after the service. But uh, if you want to turn to Titus chapter 1, we're going to read uh, the opening verses together, verses 1 through 4. And uh, let me just go ahead here. Uh, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching, which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. You may be, I never asked you to stand up. Boy, I really botched that one here. If, if you are, are, are with us normally, you say, Heidi, you, you forgot to, to call us to rise. Hopefully you are standing in your heart, okay? So um, anyway, my apologies there. But uh, let's go ahead here as we begin. Uh, just some preliminary thoughts, right? Uh, um, uh, a survey done recently found that nearly half of Americans absolutely believe truth is relative. Uh, you make of it whatever you like. Uh, there is no absolute truth to guide anything by. And that might not surprise you because we're kind of getting used to that being the status quo. It might, however, surprise you that nearly one in three evangelicals who identify themselves as evangelical Christian would have the thought of denying the deity of Christ. Translate, right, that he's not actually God. Uh, one in three. I mean, that, that's pretty profound. Uh, so they, they hold that he's basically left to be merely a good teacher, all right? And, you know, what we've got to ask ourselves really is how that accords with Scripture. The church is meant to influence the culture, right? And Jesus tells his followers, you might uh, remember this, you are the salt of the earth. You're to have an influence. Salt is a great metaphor here. It obviously pro provides a distinct flavor, makes, makes a notable difference. It preserves and it even helps to heal. What a rich metaphor uh, for the idea of the effect the church is meant to have on the culture. But what if things get turned upside down? Uh, what if instead of 
the church influencing the culture? What if it's the culture that has the influence on the church? Maybe that's why Jesus goes on in that same passage where he identifies us as the salt of the earth to say, if salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You know, you translate this as to say, hey, you've totally missed the point of the effect of salt. And I think sometimes our churches in our current culture, maybe going down a road of, of, you know, reflecting more of the culture than anything. The pressure, the pressure is constant, right? You, you hear more and more of churches changing, uh, you know, their stance on, on rather timeless doctrine, things that were hold to be orthodox or in line with the historical faith. That pressure is fierce. And as we think about that, you know, we just got to recognize that when we fail to uphold the central truths of the gospel or the teachings of scripture, we will lose our effective witness in this world or in this culture. And maybe even more concerning, we run the risk of losing the gospel altogether. Not surprisingly, Another study would identify that perhaps the biggest reason that the watching world uh, is turned off about Christianity has to do with religious hypocrisy. No shortage of hypocrites in any walk of life, uh, let alone in the church. We're an imperfect bunch. But I tell you what, uh, the, the watching world definitely disdains it when we cave, even though the pressure they're putting on so frequently is be like us, they disdain us when we are. Uh, it's very interesting. You can't win on that one. And I think the call is, hey, let's be the salt and the light that we're called to be. It seems, though, what's evident is to have a people that end up demonstrating with their lives the living proof of the gospel. That's what we so desperately need, right? This watching world needs to be able to recognize that we are different and that we are truly the salt of the world. But I think the logical question is how can a church stay the course to remain on this path and not to be sucked into kind of the, the pressures and, and the ideas ideology of this world, right? Uh, And so uh, as we turn the corner to really think about some ideas from the first chapter of Titus today, Titus's letter, or I'm sorry, Paul's letter to Titus, uh, I think will give us some good clues or some good principles uh, for doing just that, uh, that we might remain distinctly in line with, with the gospel and its call on our lives. And so as we do that, uh, let's go ahead and we'll take just a little opportunity. Um, Maybe first, before we um, move on, I'm I'm really on a roll today. I forgot the the remote, forgot to ask you to stand up. (sighs) You know, I put my pants on one leg at a time, as they say, right? So anyway, um, that's a good thing. And 
Um, well, let's go ahead, though. Uh, some of you uh, might prefer a little map here. We're going to think about what's the setting uh, of this letter, and we'll talk about the occasion of it in a bit. But, but Paul is writing to Titus, and this will be a letter that is going to reach him on the island of Crete. And Crete, uh, as you can see there in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, is going to be, you know, a a whole different culture uh, than Jerusalem by far. And uh, we're not really sure exactly when Paul would have first planted some of the churches in Crete. There are a series of house churches. uh, But we we imagine uh, most scholars will suggest the letter was written probably in the 60s AD, and it is uh, perhaps... uh, after Paul has been to Rome. Um, But nevertheless, uh, let's talk just a little bit about some guiding principles here in the first section. We wanna talk about our foundation our foundation, and we'll call it the gospel of grace and peace, okay? You can call it the gospel for short, if you like, but here again, uh, as we read, right, we've got the idea of this entrusting of the gospel uh, that Paul will identify. Uh, Paul himself will identify himself to be both a servant of God and an apostle. Those are interesting titles. That first uh, idea uh, of servant, uh, you know, he is absolutely compelled and under the grip of his Lord and Savior. And he's been uh, made an apostle, a commissioned one. That's what apostle means, is commissioned basically or sent one. And what is he sent to do? Paul had a rather unique uh, role in the early church because not only will he be commissioned to take the gospel, uh, you know, to various places, but specifically his emphasis will be the Gentiles. Now that's pretty profound, but if you track the scriptures, uh, even in the Old Testament, that was the plan from the beginning, that the Israelites would be a light to the world. So this is really part of, as we can even kind of gain some idea here, a timeless plan. In the midst of this, he's going to share that gospel and it will bring about a strengthening of the faith of God's elect. Now, we don't have time to get into all the nuances and questions that we might have uh, in this first chapter because we're going to keep it kind of broad. There is certainly a mystery surrounding the word elect, but I want to pose to you this morning that perhaps an easy uh, mystery for us to overlook with this is the fact that it is the Cretans that he is addressing this indirectly to through Titus. And these Cretans would be the last people you would think might make kind of the the group of of God's chosen uh, to to reveal the gospel to. This is pretty profound as we think about the reputation the Cretans have. Uh, There's some things that you might not just readily know. These Cretans they boasted in their uh, allegiance to Zeus. They, they were said to have a, a tomb uh, kind of uh, hosted for him. And a little bit about Zeus, right? And the whole kind of idea of the, the mythology of the past. These, these gods, including the ones that uh, the Cretans were especially uh, proud of, were, were very prone to sinful inclinations. Zeus is said to have been a liar and a seducer of women. Okay, kind of convenient and very much like the human mind to invent a God that enables you to carry out the sinful proclivities that you might have. And that's exactly what these Cretans were known for. They had a notorious 
kind of a sense for being like Zeus in the regard that they were liars. In fact, there was a word coined after them, kretizo, which literally meant to be a Cretan, which had the sense of liar, liar, pants on fire, all right? You are a deceptive soul. Could you imagine here if we contextualize that today to say seminal? meant liar or deceiver. You know, that, that, that just kind of puts the, the framework on this. When we say that the Cretans were being called uh, into this gospel message, this is pretty profound. As we kind of talk more about, right, uh, their, their ideals, uh, they were treacherous. They were violent. They were mercenaries. They were they were selfish uh, for dishonest gain. I mean, this is not a good lot. Uh, even amongst the, the Roman culture, these people were just kind of known for, no, just no, right? And, and, and here, the, the gospel of hope is going to be presented to them. I think as we ponder that, it, it is just a, a foundational truth of the gospel that there's not one people group There's not one person, there's not one pattern of sin that God can't transform. And so the gospel message goes out, right, with the expectation that it's even for the Cretizo group, right? (laughs) That's pretty profound. I don't know in your mind, uh, you know, when you think stereotypically, is there a setting uh, or a kind of group of people that you might think, well, I don't know. I don't know about them. I don't don't think they're ever going to come to faith. Paul didn't have that attitude when he thought about the Cretans. Even as we'll see in a bit, their church and their culture was completely chaotic and he still has hope, optimism for the power of the gospel. That is our foundation, all right? And as we continue, right, this knowledge of the truth that is going to come through the preaching of the word is going to accord with godliness. That's pretty profound, okay? And and I initially, as I was reading through this, I didn't even catch at first the doubling down on this idea of truth in a culture that was known for lying, right? Here you've got Paul definitely uh, emphasizing that you've got a God of truth, and that God of truth and his word of truth in the gospel is going to make an undeniable difference in the lives of the hearers who embrace it. And that undeniable difference should result not in a head knowledge left there. Oh, of course, there are propositions and truths that have to be processed with the mind in the gospel, but ultimately, hey, there is the expectation that this gospel truth is going to absolutely shape and I dare say even transform the behaviors and the tendencies and the lifestyle and, and the, what, what the passions are uh, of these people. And I think that's a, a timeout that uh, needs to be asked because we have a lot of emphasis in our current thinking, right, our larger cultural thinking that I am who I am and there is no point of change and, and you know, why would I even be called to change? The gospel calls its hearers to a different life and I think we need to emphasize there is every expectation that this gospel transforms and changes. Uh, again, I'll say even the Cretans. 
And so there's nobody in our culture that would be outside of the reach uh, of this transformative effect as well. And as we wrap up, we might just say just a couple of things briefly, right? A whole other mystery could be a sermon at large on talking about God purposing all of this before time began. Oh, it is so lofty and magnificent to think about this. There's, there's no surprises on God's radar and no people group that he didn't accommodate for a, a, a salvation rescue plan, right? He knew from the beginning. And, and I just think, wow, what, what, what loftiness. His uh, whole nature of being truthful, I love this, who never lies and he promised these things even before time began. The emphasis Paul is making, you can bank on God's character. He's not like Zeus. His promises are steadfast and certain. When we talk about the hope of eternal life, that's not a hope like I uh, hope it's nice out uh, next week, right? Uh, no, it, it is a hope that is essentially the same word as certainty. It is a certain hope that God will come through on these promises. And as we wrap up, right, we've got the introduction in verse four uh, to Titus, right? Uh, We're finally getting down to who this is to. Grace and peace, Paul pronounces, and these aren't just kind of niceties in a quick introduction. These are at the core of the gospel. God has given us what we don't deserve in Christ, grace, and it provides peace with our maker, peace from the striving or, or peace uh, from, from kind of the wrong approaches that we might have to the Holy One. God has given us a pathway to stand in his presence in the grace of Christ and we can know peace now and eternally through him. There is a richness in this introduction and by the way, as we conclude this first section, Titus, a longtime uh, friend, right? And, and we've got just the recognition uh, that Paul here is going to, we'll see it in verse five, uh, Paul is going to uh, be recognizing that God has worked profoundly in Titus's life. The transforming grace has been evident, all right? And so uh, let's go ahead. We will turn now to this second uh, point or the second larger theme, which is really gonna be something we'll unpack in two moves here. This is, the first is our foundation. The second is our calling. And we're gonna divide the calling into two portions, all right? And so uh, let's go ahead and uh, that second one is going to be the calling to live out uh, the peace uh, and the gospel uh, of grace. So Paul, who had introduced Timothy to the faith uh, a number of years back, they're longtime co-workers, uh, he is absolutely uh, entrusting Timothy because he's seen the effect of the gospel on his life and he knows he can trust him. And he says in verse five, this is why I left you in Crete so you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. That's an interesting thing. We've got a, apparently a chaos uh, that has uh, taken the Cretan church 
And remember, this is a series of house churches. Uh, but in the, in, in the whole wake of this, it would seem that this church is definitely looking more like the culture uh, than it is the scriptural uh, you know, charge. And as Paul is enacting what would be operation perhaps clean up Cretan church, uh, his goal here will be to have Titus establish godly men uh, to lead these churches. And, and this is going to be an important uh, recognition. It, it is, he's not calling for some new program. He's not calling for a more different style of worship. Uh, he's not, not calling for finding some way to kind of appeal to the culture. He is calling for people of character, specifically character that has been established because of the gospel message. And so we've got the calling uh, of these elders uh, and the appointing of them. And we'll take just a, a bit to look at a quick litmus test. We won't have time to, you know, uh, look at every element of it, but uh, there's some rapid fire uh, items that, that Paul will put out here. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Okay, there's our, our initial uh, call. And, and just real quick, maybe, um, you know, without belaboring it too much, we, we would say above reproach does not mean perfect, okay? Uh, what it means is people whose lives are genuinely known to be of good character, all right, I will emphasize an elder is somebody who absolutely makes mistakes and is capable of sinning and has to repent of those sins on a routine basis, okay? I, being one of them, am very familiar with that idea, okay? <laughs> Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, right? You can ask my wife, okay? Uh, but but what, one, one of the things I would say when we talk about being above reproach there should be a quickness to repent of sin, quickness to identify patterns that aren't in line with the gospel and to throw ourselves on the grace of God. And so this is, this is part of what it means to be above reproach, right? Not, not perfect, uh, but again, faithful and consistent uh, with the message uh, of, of the gospel, having received it and having it make a difference. The husband uh, of one wife, okay, uh, faithful in marriage, if one is married, okay? This verse does not preclude that you must be married uh, to, to be uh, an elder or even a pastor, right? But, but in this regard, uh, faithful. By the way, uh, just a general litmus test, if, if the call to all Christians is to demonstrate something of Christ's love for the church in marriage, men are called to do that, to love their wives sacrificially. If the man, uh, as an elder or a pastor, is married, they should demonstrate something, even if uh, far from perfectly so. There should be a clear you know, recognition that there is a loving and tender way uh, that his wife is being treated. Now, the children being believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, that, that gets us into a question. Uh, is this verse saying that all uh, of the children need to be Christians? That would be impossible to ensure. I think uh, the ESV has a footnote on this verse uh, saying that that ver word, I'm sorry, uh, uh, believers can be translated faithful. And in this regard, it would be kind of more consistent with maybe uh, 1 Timothy, which makes clear that 
the household is in general order. There's some parenting skill being demonstrated here. We're not talking about perfection, and no pastor or elder can guarantee that his children will walk in the faith. But there should be a demonstration of there's been an attempt to absolutely point that child to the faith. And there should be some sense of that household being harmonious and in order, all right? And so uh, that idea is essentially, you know, um, what we'll roll with. And, and you can just kind of say logically, if those things aren't true, then hey, that person would be better served to kind of work on those things rather than, you know, spend time uh, opening, uh, you know, uh, life to a, a charge of, of caring for others at, at broad on that. So uh, spend some more time uh, working in your home. But um, we'll move on. Verse seven, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, must not be arrogant. Now we're looking at, hey, what are some disqualifiers? Must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable. Back to some positives, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Notice he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so here we've got just a broad litmus test. Might help uh, just to take a, a look at a, a quick chart right here. And uh, if you're a visual person, I, I kind of like just the, the quick summary, right? Uh, that's just my bent. But let's think real quickly uh, through all of this uh, just to, to ask uh, as we as we see this, what is it that Paul is essentially getting us to, right? Not only should these people be good character, but, but the reason we need this is because there's such an obvious need in every walk of life for us to have people uh, that we can see, what does it look like to live this out? And, and again, I'm not suggesting that elders or pastors are perfect. Uh, we could probably hear some pretty difficult stories of people that have been let down uh, by perhaps some unfaithfulness in a pastoral situation. Obviously, those stories make the news and they scar us, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. The litmus test is here for a reason, okay? And it is fully uh, within the realm of expectation to say the gospel at work can produce this kind of fruit and should produce this kind of fruit. And the reason that this is put out here is not only should these kind of people be leading in the church, but there is a clear expectation very similar to what Jose said at the end of our time of worship right? What did he say? He said, hey, the, the call to sing songs of praise wasn't just for the pastors, right? It, it's for all of us. And I'll tell you what, the calling for these character traits, they're not just meant for an elder, right? They're meant for all of us. There should be something uh, yeah, of a recognition that your life needs to be coming increasingly uh, under uh, the influence of the gospel, not of this world, but of the gospel. And what should come out, the, the byproduct of that should look like a change and transform life, just like we talked about in the earlier section. And if that's true, how helpful will it be to have people that we can look at and say, hey, I, I see their example. I I want to follow that. Uh, it's a sobering call to be an elder, but it is an all call for us to be about these things. 
I hope we can see that, and I hope we can even see the goodness in that, right? What are we talking about from the beginning? We've been talking about what does it look like? How can we stay the course of being salt and light in this world so that they can see that we are truly living differently, right? We're not talking about an act here. We're talking about genuine character change, genuine transformation affected by the gospel, demonstrating the power of God. The watching world should be able to say, wow, uh, everywhere I look, there's examples in this culture of people who are living like Cretans perhaps at times, but I look at you, church, and I see people living for a different call and a different purpose. How do you do that? How is it that your life is so different? Ah, now we've got an easy avenue to point to our foundation, right? The gospel did this world. The gospel, and you can know Jesus too, and that transformation can be part of your story. That, that's the clear wisdom in this plan that isn't ultimately Paul's wisdom, but it's God's plan, right? And so I think it's just beautiful uh, to, to recognize uh, just how this is supposed to work when we get it right. Well, let's just, uh, as a quick application point, let's ask you this, right? What do you do with this? I, I think there's a, a couple of uh, points of application. First of all, uh, and, and I know it seems self-serving, but, but, or could seem self-serving, but you know, I'm just walking through the text, right? Uh, so as an elder, I'm, I'm going to say, hey, elders need your prayers, okay? Uh, absolutely, this is a hard call. And some people, you know, uh, certainly in our culture say, I don't want to be anybody's role model, right? I, I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, but you know what? We need we need in our world and we need in our church, we need role models. We need people that are, uh, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing. But I'll tell you what, the, the call is lofty. Your elders need your prayer. You know, uh, you could easily, if you were so inclined, you, you could make it your goal to pray for a different elder each day of the week. I mean, we don't even have uh, seven of them, right? So you could, you could take a day off somewhere in there. But, <laughs> but, but I'm just saying, uh, we would desperately uh, need your prayers and, and certainly love your prayers. By the way, elders are called to pray for you all too. So there's a reciprocal act going on here. But, uh, but yeah, pray, pray, pray that your elders would be more and more directed by the word and less by the world. Pray that your elders would have a, a, just a renewed passion for Jesus that they bring to all uh, that they are thinking about for the church and the Sundays and everything else, right? Your elders need your prayer. There's nothing natural left to our own strength that's going to produce the transformation that we're talking about here. This is God's work, and, and we covet your prayers on that very thing, right? Pray, pray for wisdom that we would stay above reproach. We hear scandals, right? We don't want scandals here. How does a church stay the course and be salt and light? Hey, by staying, you know, in keeping with, with, with gospel character, Right? By the way, I would say also, uh, there's just a calling here, even as we've looked at uh, some of these traits, maybe some of you would just do an honest inventory and say, hey, my, my living right now might seem less about gospel character and more about being influenced by this world. Uh, I, I'm not wagging my finger at anybody, but listen, the gospel calls us routinely to examine ourselves, uh, 
and to where we are out of step with the gospel and, and it's calling on our life, to repent of that and to confess it to God. And God, uh, who is faithful and just, can cleanse you from all unrighteousness, right? This is, this is a good thing. By the way, repentance, you shouldn't see this as something that's kind of rare in your life, right? I, I already spilled the beans, right? I, I, I have to ask for my wife's forgiveness. Did it even this week, right? Uh, and, and there should be a willingness and a readiness in us as we look at ourselves in the spiritual mirror to make adjustments, and then those adjustments start with, with just acknowledging humbly before God, Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, just a couple of application points on that first section. Well, I said, we've got a foundation in the gospel, and we've got a calling, right? That calling, obviously, uh, to live uh, the gospel. And as we continue, uh, we wanna just recognize there's a, a third part of this. And it's already been uh, kind of foreshadowed, but we're talking about a call to guard, to guard the gospel, to guard it. We, we are absolutely being bombarded with worldly thoughts and ideals and principles that will dilute the gospel, but can we guard it? Let's take just a, a little look at this last section. Paul says to Titus, for there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, in our current culture, uh, the wrong reader of this might say, that Paul, he's just intolerant. I suppose he is. He's intolerant of anything that will counterfeit itself in place of the true gospel because of the deadly peril that that can bring, right? To trust in a diluted and modified gospel is like trusting in a faulty parachute. This is why Paul gets hot about this. He loves his people enough that he wants to see them putting their faith in something that will truly deliver, something that is trustworthy and true, something that is in accord with the promises guaranteed by God in, in the first part of the letter, right? But a faulty gospel can't deliver. It will only bring chaos and destruction. Let's talk just a, a few points here as we uh, think through this last uh, of our principles today. Uh, Paul's, um, you know, uh, concern here is obviously uh, for false teachers. These false teachers have infiltrated the church. This particular uh, false teaching seems to be centered on uh, some things related to the Jewish faith that have been brought in with the Christian faith. 
We don't know all of the specific details of what that uh, is. Uh, some would speculate that there's things related to uh, purity being established by Jewish food laws, uh, perhaps uh, some other myths that uh, are referred to here broadly. Uh, as, as we will kind of continue uh, to think through this, the good news is the exact teaching that was you know, infiltrating the church doesn't matter. What does matter is its effect. And what we'll see is that even uh, you know, while the teachings and the false gospels, if you would, of today's era, while they differ from what was you know, being experienced there in Crete, the results of false gospels are pretty much of the same and so this makes the, uh, us to realize we've got a, a relevancy factor by thinking through some of these concepts. We can easily apply them uh, today. We'll, we'll get to that. But one of the, the things that is clear as day is that these people that were the false teachers, uh, they were motivated uh, by different Things and these different things included, uh, you know, the gain uh, of money and, and through dishonest means. Uh, they are um, uh, empty in their talk. That means for all of their fine-sounding, you know, ideas, it doesn't actually seem to work. All right, it doesn't seem to work on just the the basic sniff test, the litmus test, and we'll look at that more in, in a second. And, and as we continue uh, to ponder that, right, perhaps uh, the, the biggest thing that we'd say there is that their lives aren't producing good character, right? Uh, in the end, not only are they creating chaos in the Cretan church, they're showing themselves as hypocrites, they, their, their character does not uh, follow in line with any kind of a transformation or any sense of godliness. It looks more like Cretan culture than anything else. Now, the last thing this world needs is another philosophy that makes you look just like everybody else. But that's essentially what was going on here. You've got some Jewish myths and a little bit of maybe Jewish culture spun in here, but the net effect was basically Cretan, all right? Why do Cretans need a little Jewish background in order to be Cretan, okay? Well, I mean, you can do as you will, but that, that holds true for us today too. Uh, or are the philosophies and principles that we're looking at and perhaps adding to Christianity uh, are they just making the world around us say, well, what do we need that for? Uh, we can do that without Christianity and uh, certainly uh, the idea of hypocrisy that will come, right, uh, as people are not living out uh, their faith. We'll, we'll wrap up uh, this uh, second point here to, to think about um, verse 16. I'm sorry, got a little jumpy with the button there. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. There's the emphasis point, right? And so is it making a difference in their life? The answer is no. So how about our culture today? If, if it's not so much the Jewish myths that are taking hold and infiltrating the church, uh, what would be some ideas that would be parallels? Well, glad you're asking. Okay, let's talk about that briefly, right? Uh, for some in our culture at large, maybe not in our churches, they're denying the existence of God, and that's a convenient way for them to do as they want to do. But if we want to put a spiritual element on it, for many, 
they might even come to churches and still deny that there is truth or that uh, they would su suppose that it's up to personal opinion as to what's true and everybody can have their own truth, okay? Again, how convenient. Essentially, you can never be wrong. Uh, if you haven't studied world religions, by the way, that's Hinduism, okay? So uh, there are a million paths, uh, really uh, millions of gods, and anyone you choose will get you there. Uh, there is no truth that ultimately matters. Everybody's right. Uh, but uh, we talk about maybe a harder one to discern would be something that has seemingly more Christianity to it, right? And that's the idea of any time we do a Jesus plus. Remember from our, our series back a little while ago, Dylan, Dylan was, I think, so helpful in just giving us that little phrase, Jesus plus anything, right? It, it ruins everything. And, and the emphasis is on what's being added, right? What's being added to the gospel is going to be disastrous. So what, what are some things that we might add to the gospel? Well, uh, you know, the blending could be uh, Christianity is a way, but not the way. It could be I'll, I'll, I'll metaphor it, right? Uh, like a spiritual buffet, right? All you can eat. I'll take a little of this teaching and a little of that teaching from the scripture, but I don't really like that teaching over there, right? Uh, so I, I'm not, no, that, that doesn't go on my spiritual plate, right? We can kind of, I've seen a lot of Christians do it. They want to pick and choose what ideas from the Bible they, they would want to incorporate, either about God or his salvation plan or even about humanity. And so this is an important thing for us to recognize. It's easy, even in the church, for us to take this idea and adapt the gospel in a way that is not scriptural at all. And when we veer off the path to historical Orthodox teachings represented in the scripture and sometimes summarized by some very solid creeds uh, that we have uh, available, right? Uh, what we've done with the gospel is make it no better than that faulty parachute. So false teachings and false gospels, they will lead their followers to live immoral lives. Let me give you an example here. Again, just kind of uh, dovetailing with what we've just talked about. You'll have many deny the biblical teachings of hell or even the day of judgment. You'll have many downplay the idea of sin or even living a changed life and the need to do it. Ah, God takes me as I am and so no need to change at all. There is no such thing as sin. Many of them approve of all sorts of sexual immorality that are clearly prohibited, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New. And I'm talking about all forms of sexual immorality. Our culture today champions it and there is a definite pull and a pressure on many, even within the church, to say, ah, let's just adapt. Let's just adapt broadly. And you know what? There are a lot of churches that will give you uh, an absolute hooray, hurrah, and cheer you on your way in doing this. All of them will rebrand the teachings of Jesus to make some new kind of Jesus that is something other than what he claimed he was, right? If you hold that Jesus is a good teacher, what's your natural follow-up question? It ought to be, what did the good teacher actually teach, right? And yet so many people that want to claim Jesus, and every religion does, and every false philosophy has some way in on Jesus, but we want to make him to say something other than what he said about himself. How convenient. 
We're no different uh, than Crete in this regard when we do that. So as we wrap up today, right, we've, lo- we've looked at just some very, it's not a very complicated message, but it's a challenging idea nonetheless. We've looked at the gospel foundation and we've looked at the calling, right? The calling to live the gospel, to actually see it unfold and transform our lives and, and the call to be jealously guarding it and protecting it from uh, false counterfeit versions, right? That, that, there's, there's our call. Yeah, so the, the question kind of as, as we wrap up for some application, right, is if we're going to be the kind of people that both live out and guard the gospel, right, we need to be people, there's no doubt about it, people that are in God's word. You can't You can't expect to be continually growing and progressing in in transformation. And by the way, that transformation is not a one and done, right? It's a lifetime process. I'm not trying to say if you haven't gone arrived at where you want to be, like, uh, you know, that you're somehow missing the boat, right? I'm saying there should be some sense of progress of saying, hey, I am changing. God is changing me. What I'm living for and my passions and my desires, and I can even see some track record of some things that have changed, right? But those come as we are in the word, as we're being recalibrated by God's holy word. And there is no way, absolutely no way, that we can be faithfully guarding and protecting one another from false teachings if we are not absolutely, absolutely inside and out knowledgeable of what the genuine is, right? You, you probably know that idea of identifying, you know, counterfeit currency comes so easily when you are so familiar with the real deal. And I think too many sitting in churches all across this county are maybe only moderately familiar with the word of God. Church, let's be people that are pressing into reading on our own, not just, not just waiting for Sunday. Dylan, Dylan just so wonderfully serves us week in and week out. But, but if all you're going by is what he's, he's giving you, right? God intends for you to be taking in his word on your own. And I just want to encourage you, find that reading plan uh, if you haven't already. The word of God uh, will transform you. And uh, so... Uh, let's, let's go ahead and, and just, we close with prayer. We rejoice at the goodness of God who pronounces grace and peace through Christ, no matter where we've been, who we are, what we've done, no matter what, what grips our lives and the difficulties we face, his grace and peace are available. Let's be a people that press into that and are willing to live differently and reflect that to the culture around us. That's what this world needs from us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel to cancel and cleanse us from our sins, Lord. Cancel our sins and cleanse us from them. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the gospel, not only on the day that we drew near to you in Christ, but, but continuously is at work uh, to, to give us transformation, to, to be at work, to form Christ in us. And we just ask. Uh, we, can't, we can't manufacture that in our own strength. We ask for your Holy Spirit to continue to be at work 
to accomplish this. It is for your glory that we would ask that. And Lord, we will flourish and we will, we will point others to you um, through the living track record of your faithfulness, Lord. Uh, we, will, we will prove the power of the gospel. So we ask that you would do this for your name's sake. And we give you our thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.